0: Welcome to the Canola Watch Podcast. I'm Jay Wetter. The topic today is flea beetles, and the content comes from a Manitoba Canola Growers webinar on April 8th, 2021. I hosted and five guests presented on various aspects of flea beetle management. Guests were John Gavlosky, Alejandro Costa Magna, Keith Gobert, Autumn Barnes, and Larry Durand. I will introduce each presenter as we go along. Note that I've condensed the content somewhat for this podcast. My colleague Keith Gobbard helped organize the event, and he's the insects lead for the Canola Council of Canada agronomy team. I asked Keith what he wanted people to get out of the webinar, and he said, Beware of the potential damage from flea beetles, and, in a word, scout. John Govlosky leads off with a good description of what to look for. John is an entomologist with Manitoba Agriculture and Resource Development based out of Carmen. He's an excellent extension specialist, providing farmers and agronomists with information on insects, including beneficial insects and potential pests. Here's John.
1: When we talk about flea beetles, to most canola growers, we're talking one or two species that feed on canola. But there's actually a group or tribe of flea beetles that um, they're quite diverse. There's about 470 species in North America In Manitoba, we've actually got about 72 species of flea beetles. So uh, again, quite diverse. And not all of them are bad flea beetles. There are some that are potential pests, a couple in canola, one in potatoes. Most flea beetles um, are kind of neutral. There are actually a few beneficial flea beetles in the prairies. In fact, there's been several species of flea beetles that have been released purposely to control leafy spurge because, their larvae do a great job feeding on the roots they feed on the upper parts and they are a great biocontrol. so there's bad flea beetles and there's good flea beetles of the 72 in Manitoba 10 will feed on canola and two are potential problems in our canola really the striped flea beetle and the crucifer flea beetle those are your two um, more problem flea beetles. They are a little different in their biology. I'll go over some of that. Uh, Striped flea beetle comes out a bit earlier than crucifer flea beetle. Um, They're similar in many ways but their life cycles are slightly different. Both of them are introduced species so they were uh, accidentally brought over. The striped flea beetle has been here a long time. Um, There's reports of it from prior to the 1700s, so it's been here for a while. Crucifer flea beetle, first found in British Columbia in 1923, but by the late 30s, early 40s, it had spread uh, well into and through the prairies and was becoming a major pest on cruciferous crops that were grown in the prairies. Now, moving on to life cycle. When we, um, What you see for flea beetles is the adults, and you see them twice. They overwinter as adults, So you will see the adults usually from about mid-August until into October. That's when they will start getting underneath the leaf litter, overwintering. The exact same flea beetles are what come out in the spring and feed on your canola and do all the damage. In between, they're laying eggs uh, and you've got larvae feeding on the roots. I'll show you some pictures of that later. Uh, Now those flea beetles that start coming out in the spring, there's been a few studies on what drives them and gets their cycle going. Um, Generally, they will fly when the daily maximum temperature is above about 14 degrees and they prefer to fly on calm days. Um, So down here, I mentioned negatively correlated with average wind speed. That basically means they don't like it when it's windy, they will hunker down and stay put. But you get a calm day above about 14 in the spring and that's when they will start moving about and in fact they've already been moving about this year a little bit. Some of the striped flea beetles have been out on some of the warmer days we've been having in the prairies, but still it's uh, just a a, a fraction of what's uh, overwintered. Peak emergence of the crucifer flea beetle usually occurs near the end of May. This was based on research done in Alberta when the ground temperature reaches about 15, so that's when you're going to get your peak emergence, and we know uh, observationally that Late May, early June—that is when the flea beetles seem to be at their their peak or their worst. Uh, again, that's when the crucifer seems to be um, starting to dominate. Usually, what happens is striped comes out first, and uh, here in, in much of Manitoba, we see the striped anytime from uh, it could be mid to late April. They seem to start dying off a bit earlier. By about late May, it's becoming crucifer, that's the dominant species, and they can be very abundant well into June. Now, the challenge you have as a canola grower is getting your plant to a um, more tolerant stage before the flea beetles can do too much damage. And what I have in red here is also bolded. So this is extremely important to take in. Slow emergence and early season growth will make canola more vulnerable to flea beetles. With the seed treatments you have on your canola, you've got three to, depending on the conditions, maybe four weeks of protection. I would bank on three. If you're lucky, you might get a bit more. So you've got those three weeks. And that's from the time you seed, not the time you start seeing cotyledons above the ground. That's from the time you seed. You've got roughly three weeks of protection. Anything that slows down that early growth is gonna make your crop more vulnerable. If you get a year where you seed things germinate really quickly, you get through the cotyledon and first leaf stages really quickly, you may not have to worry about foliar spraying. But a lot of years aren't like that, whether it's frost, dry conditions, cool soil temperatures, um, could be other insects like cutworms that are helping to uh, contribute to feeding. There's a lot of things that can really Uh, slow your crops down. And the research done here in Manitoba um, it kind of looked at the stages that flea beetles were doing the most damage and um, this is older research from the 80s. They determined that it was the cotyledon and first, first two leaf stages really that were the most susceptible. After that things progressively start getting a bit more tolerant to the feeding. And what heavy feeding will do is it can cause delayed plant development Uh, uneven, heightened maturity, reduce your seed yield, and raise the chlorophyll content of your seed. So to wrap up in the last couple minutes here, I just want to go over um, some of the challenges we have in um, assessing the damage from flea beetles. One of the the tricky parts with flea beetles and trying to determine, okay, do we need to fully spray or not, is you are being asked to uh, assess flea beetle injury, which is a subjective thing. Um, our eyes are always drawn to the damage. So when you have 25%, if you have a close, look, like there's a lot of undamaged tissue here, but there's a lot of damage as well. Our eyes tend to be drawn to this damage. And so something like 25%, it's really easy to want to see 30, 40, 50%. And we did an experiment once at crop diagnostic school. We sent people out with to, to assess damage on some leaves and then later gave them a picture key to use. And generally their assessments went down when they used the picture keys. People would tend to overrate. Again, your eyes are drawn to that um, damage. So there are picture keys available. You could try to find one to maybe help you out a bit. Um, another uh, tricky part to assessing flea beetle injury is we're only looking at the cotyledons with that 25%, but you've got damage to the stems and pedios. How do you factor that in? If it looks like the whole thing is gonna die on you, then it's pretty much gonna be 100%. But that does make it much trickier to make decisions based on flea beetles. And one last note, uh, when you're trying to make those spray decisions, also factor in, what are the conditions like? Can the plant possibly compensate well? Have they got good soil moisture? Is it dry? How are the plants doing? Try to factor that all into your decision-making.
0: Right on. Thanks, John. Well done. Okay, so our next speaker is Alejandro Costa Magna, who is an associate professor of entomology at the University of Manitoba. He works on sustainable methods to control insect pests in crops. And he's interested in how landscape complexity and natural enemies can be used to control pests. Obviously he's doing work on flea beetles. Um, That's why he's here. So he's gonna talk today a bit about the shift in species um, and also uh, that that really key topic that he's working on are the landscape effects on flea abundance, defoliation and predators. Ali.
2: Hey, thank you very much, Jay. And thank you very much everybody to, to attend to this uh, webinar. So uh, for this, we were fortunate to sample uh, many fields um, in, uh, in the prairies. And uh, we thank you all the farmers that uh, allow us to work in their fields. What we usually do is uh, put uh, five sticky traps uh, uh, for several weeks and assess the foliation. So we have sampled a number of fields uh, across the years. Uh, this is just a summary of the, uh, the first uh, three years of work. Uh, we have uh, more coming. And one of the things we notice. Um, is that uh, among the two main species that uh, John introduced, the stripe and the crucifer, there has been a shift in the composition of the, um, of, of the flea beetle uh, assemblage of pests in canola. So traditionally, uh, for example, in Manitoba, we have uh, the community dominated by crucifer flea beetles, 88 to 96% and only a minor proportion of of, uh, striped phlebitos, but now we found in our samples between 51 to 69%. uh, Similar situation in Saskatchewan used to be kind of, even in previous years, now it's uh, heavily shifted towards more striped phlebitos. And even in less rich in Alberta, where Hector works, used to be uh, dominated by um, crucifer phlebitos. And now we have up to a third of the samples composed of striped ribitos. And the other region we work in, um, in Alberta near Beaver Lurch uh, in the Peace River, uh, it has been always uh, dominated by striped and continues to be so. So uh, we have seen a, a relative recent shift in the composition of species with more striped in there. The other thing we are really interested in is to see if we, if we understand what uh, type of variables and features of the landscape can help us to predict whether we'll have more abundance of flea and more damage. So using this uh, large dataset that we have collected, uh, we fit some statistical models to see what are the best uh, predictors of the abundance of these flea and, and here are the results for, that we have so far. We're still um, checking the analysis and looking for some other variables. Uh, but what we have so far is that for crucifer flibito, um the proportion of canola that are within a two kilometer radius is affecting their abundance. So the more canola you have, the less phlebitol we observe in the fields we sample. Um, and that could be explained by some sort of dilution effect. If you have more canola, then you have less phlebitol in the fields you sample. But we'll see the, the, the story is a bit more complicated than that. The other important predictor is uh, called edge density. And this is just a measure of the amount of field border that we have in the, uh, per, divided by the area of the, uh, of, of the landscape. So essentially what it means is that if you have smaller fields, um, then this edge uh, density is higher. So what we found is that in landscapes in which we have a smaller fields uh, of any crop, not just canola, smaller fields in general, uh, we have a lower densities of flea mm-hmm. uh, In terms of what seems to be associated with higher densities of crucifer, uh, the higher proportion of grass borders uh, seems to increase or be associated with an increase of crucifer flea beetle. And then we have a very weak but significant effect of the proportion of woodland within half a kilometer. Now, uh, to our surprise, Seems, seems to be different for striped phlebitol. These are very closely related species. They have very similar biology, similar effects, feed on the same plants, but yet they are responding very differently to the landscape around the same fields we sample. And for striped flevito, what we found is that the main uh, things that drive their abundance are really the year at which we did a sample, the region at which sample, even the week at which sample are uh, significant factors affecting their abundance. And the only thing that the landscape we can found is um, an effect of the, uh, the proportion of woodland within a half a kilometer radius around the field. That seems to increase the abundance of striped beetles. So very different responses to the same variables. Now, when we look at defoliation, uh, we have a different picture again. And defoliation is uh, it's a product of both species. We can't distinguish whether defoliation was due to stripe or crucifer, and most of the time we have them mixed in the fields. Uh, so it's a combination of both. So if you consider that, it's not a surprise that the actual defoliation seems to be influenced by, by slightly different factors. And what we found is that the defoliation is explained by the proportion of canola within a half a kilometer radius. So the more canola, the more defoliation. So uh, different than what happened with the abundance of uh, crucifer. And also the size of the canola fields. So the size of uh, canola fields, if there are bigger fields within a half a kilometer radio, we observe higher damage on canola. Uh, for grass border, we have the opposite again, as for the abundance in crucifer fluvito. Um, the more grass border within half a kilometer, uh, the uh, the lower the damage on on the canola. And finally, we have a, a weak, a very weak, I would say, but significant um, uh, explanatory factor as the abundance of stripe rybito. So we were able to relate defoliation with the abundance of stripe, but not crucifer, which I think it's uh, it's interesting. We're still working with this analysis, and we're not so sure what conclusions we can make, but this is what we have so far. So it's more to come for this. Uh, the other uh, factors uh, or the other uh, studies I want to share with you very quickly are done by, uh, by Sheila in the lab. And it's another thing we are really interested to see what kind of natural enemies consume phlebitos. And here you have a picture of the, um, of the usual beneficials that we found in the, in the field. These are ground predators. And so out of the groups, we try um, a couple of uh, ground predators, uh, Harpalus and terosticus, which are common ground beetles, uh, reduce the number of uh, flea beetles in the petri dishes after two days. So here we have um, a control with no predators. Most of them survive. And uh, the ones with these uh, two uh, genera, um, uh sustained mortality and so did the ones with uh, two of the three spiders we tried so there's uh, this we show that these predators under these rather um, artificial conditions they're able to capture them and consume them very effectively okay and some of the other predators uh were actually not very interested in them according to our experiments so we're going to follow up with this in um, in more realistic arenas, and see if we can correlate their abundance in the field with some mortality for flebitus. And the last thing I want to show um, is another experiment in which we are interested in seeing what affects uh, stem damage that uh, um, uh, Sean uh, showed uh, before was um, another f- uh, of another factor affecting the um, canola by these insects. So we did a simple experiment uh, with uh, a plant manipulating the number of plants to mimic different planting uh, rates. Uh, so six canola plants or 12 canola plants, again, six uh, flea vitals per cage. And we quantify both um, uh, damage to the cotyledon and damage to the stem. So here you have a heavily damaged plant. And we did this at two temperatures at 28 degrees constant and 18 to see if temperature affect the preference for feeding on the cotyledon versus uh, the, uh, the stem. And essentially what we found is that uh, temperature affects them. There's way more feeding on the, so this is uh, defoliation, there's way more feeding at 28 degrees than at 18 degrees. And it doesn't seem like at the uh, plant densities that we use with the number of libitos we use, there's a difference whether there were more or less plants. Uh, The damage was not very heavy. Uh, This is after 24 hours. Uh, And in terms of stem damage, we found pretty much the same, higher stem damage at 28 than 18, uh, and not really an increase due in in plants uh, or in pots that have uh, half of the plants than in pots that have high densities. Uh, So we are still um, looking into this. We will probably try a, a lower temperature to see Uh, whether we see differences, but the damage is very, very small at low temperatures. So uh, it's been hard to do that. At high temperatures, if we continue the experiment for more than 24 hours, um, then then, uh, this is what happens. (laughs) Uh, And in some cases, the plant dies and we can't estimate the stem damage. But so far, uh, this is what we get. Um, So um, in conclusion, uh, just to uh, give some take-home points, uh, we have seen a shift in the abundance of the uh, striped flea seems to be becoming uh, the dominant species in a lot of areas. Um, they, uh, Despite their similar species, they respond to different uh, features in the landscape uh, and in a different way, the two species. We found more damage associated with more canola and bigger canola fields at half a kilometer and a weak association with uh, striped flea beetle abundance. Uh, We found at least two genera of of ground beetles and two genera of spiders attacking flea beetles uh, in lab conditions and we found uh, increased damage of the cotyledon and on the stem at higher temperature.
0: Moving on to my colleague Keith Gobert. So Keith works for the Canola Council of Canada. He's an agronomy specialist based out of central Alberta and he leads the team on insects. Uh, We can't pull him away from those insects. He just loves them so much. In fact, uh, he tells a story about when he was a kid, he would go out into the cabbage patches and uh, he would hit the white butterflies with a shovel. And then he would uh, put big dents in the cabbages and his parents were mad. Anyway, so he's saying that he's pretty sure his technique has improved and just so that we can make the cabbage connection, of course, anybody who's smelled a canola field knows that cabbages and canola are closely related and have many of the same pests. Anyway, Keith, what do you got for us?
3: John and Alejandro have obviously already covered some pretty important things about flea beetles. So I'm just going to cover a couple slides uh, and leave some more important things for for Autumn and Larry, Larry to cover. So Feel free to go back to our canola encyclopedia and the references uh, material that we have on our site, because there's a lot of good information there. Sometimes we forget to go look at it. One thing that we haven't really addressed with John and Alejandro is that the most common control measure for flea beetles and, and something that we've, we've essentially put on every bag of seed, every blue seed that goes into the ground in Western Canada is an insecticide seed treatment. So there's a lot of things that go in and around and on that blue seed and there's a lot of things that you can do right uh, and things that you have choices for. So if you've gone in to pick up seed this spring, you've probably ordered it back in October and they asked you questions about what do you want for a seed treatment and, and do you want the upgrade? Is there, is there something that you're concerned about? I've highlighted here the insecticide portion if we're talking about flea beetles, obviously we understand that there's a whole seedling disease complex that can set back our crop and cause us some problems on the disease side, but we're gonna focus predominantly on, on insects and obviously on flea beetles. There's a number of different choices that you have on, uh, on, the, uh, on the market here now. And typically it's, it varies by seed supplier Um, and it depends which company you're buying seed from and which agreement they've made with their seed treatment supplier, what your choices will be. But there tends to be two general streams. You'll find uh, the Helix Vibrance on most of your Roundup Ready products. You'll see the Prosper Evergo on most of the Invigor BSF products, uh, because there's some strong connections with the chemistry development within those companies. And on top of that, you'll see some new entrants into the market. We've got Buteo an upgraded flea beetle seed treatment that's available for the first time this year. We've got a group 28 insecticide, Lumiderm or Fortenza or Fortenza Advanced. Um, it's, it's marketed in, in the marketplace as well. Um, and the one thing that I wanted to point out on the canola seed treatments is we've relied on neonic seed treatments for a, a decade and a half now. And it's been a real core for our flea beetle protection really good mammalian toxicity package, uh, effective on the flea beetles. It's been under a, a bit of pressure. So we're really pleased that uh, the ability to continue to use NeoNix has been preserved for us. You've seen that announcement in the news. So I just thought I'd call that to your attention. We've been adding seed treatments to the market, but the NeoNix have been a, a pretty solid uh, tool for us. And we're happy to see that that continues and should give ourselves a, a pat on the back to, to continue to keep this tool available for customers. The Buteo is a 4D is different than the Neonic in a a 4. Sophloxifer from uh, um, Syngenta is an additional treatment that enhances some flea beetle uh, activity. So you could have one, two, three, or probably even four different insecticides as an option in your seed treatment package coming into this spring. The group 28, while it does enhance flea beetle activity, uh, does a really good job particularly uh, with some enhancement on striped flea beetles. It also adds, depending on the rate, cutworm protection. So if you've, the, the best customer for those additional seed treatments tends to be growers that have had issues with cutworms in the past because I can't predict flea beetles but I definitely can't predict cutworms. So it's really hard to decide when you're gonna need to upgrade these seed treatments and what you're gonna need. But if you've had trouble with stand establishment in the past, chances are that you're gonna think about putting a little more investment into protecting that seed moving into the future. It's actually pretty hard to assess flea beetle feeding damage. I like to tell people that the best way to assess flea beetle feeding damage is to have somebody else do it. I I like to say that flea beetles are a temperature driven engine and a lot of factors can go into into deciding uh, how quickly you need to act. But that 25% action threshold is there because in really severe conditions, we can move from that 25% action threshold through to the 50% in as little as a day. And and those thresholds are for the entire field. It's not just the one spot you stop at the gate, because sometimes we'll see a a real influx of pests or damage there or poor stand. So it's something you have to do a good job scouting on. And recall that that 25% action threshold is really the point where I tell growers, you should have some insecticide in the shed or at least spoken for at your dealer, because if you need to spray that decision might be made, might need to be made very quickly. I've mentioned that the action threshold and the economic threshold is 25 and 50% respectively. But one of the things we'd like you to point out is you wanna look for new feeding. So the seed treatments that we have available really need to be consumed to have any effect on the insects. So you're gonna have some feeding even under the most successful conditions for and establishment, chances are you're gonna have some pock marks I've got a little red circle there indicating some relatively fresh feeding. And if you spend any amount of time out in the field, you'll be able to identify some old feeding that tend to be a little dry around the edges. They often look crusty. Sometimes you'll see some leaf death near, near them as well, but it's fairly easy to distinguish between a nice clean edge that probably looks a little damp or wet still because it's still leaking from recent feed, flea beetle feeding, from old flea beetle feeding that might have been there for a week or two. And we're not really worried about the week or two damage. We're worried about the 25 to 50% and are the flea beetles actively feeding? So a couple of things to consider that I've already talked about is general stand condition. Autumn will really get into that for us here as our next speaker, feeding on new leaves. And I'd like you to assess stem feeding damage. Now, there is no threshold for stem feeding damage. So I'm happy to see that Alejandro is doing some of that work. But if your crop isn't looking better, every second day or so as you're coming out to look to, look at it and chances are you're going to be scouting more frequently if you're starting to worry about flea beetle damage. If your crop isn't looking better this is one of the things that you should have been scouting for already or, or need to add to your scouting program is perhaps you've had co- cool windy conditions that really don't promote feeding on the, on the upper leaf surfaces and maybe they've hunkered down near the stem and they're chewing that plant off right at the bottom and You're gonna have to take a guess for uh, what the threshold is there, but obviously a chewed off plant is hundred percent and one bite you may be able to to sort of overlook, but it's one of those things that you just add as another risk factor. Now, if you've made the decision to spray for flea beetles, or if actually the decision is, if your seed treatment isn't providing you enough protection and you've hit that 25%, it looks like you're gonna be at 50 and you're concerned, There are a lot of foliar insecticide options. I really won't go over them. I've simply pulled this out of our provincial crop protection guides. The one thing that you'll need to be aware of is that, depending on which seed treatment package you've got, which company you've you've sourced your seed from, there may in fact be some package options for, um, for graminicides, herbicides you're using, and insecticides. And even if those packages lower the cost of an insecticide option, it doesn't change the decision-making process of do you need to spray. So the cost of this foliar insecticide really needs to include the environmental impact of removing all the beneficials or the things that you're taking over and managing yourself with a foliar insecticide option. Because it's a pretty pretty big hammer in terms of uh, impact on the insect beneficial or pests and otherwise uh, that are in that field. And it's something we encourage growers to avoid until they need it. I'm going to hand it back over to you, Jay.
0: Um, all right, we're going to move on to Autumn, another Canola Council colleague of mine, and Autumn's going to talk about how establishing a, a good, strong, uniform stand uh, can help with flea beetle management in particular, among other things. Autumn.
4: Hey, thanks, Jay. Um, I'm going to talk about um, canola establishment this morning, and I kind of broke it down to a kind of a recipe for success. So the number one thing you need to be doing with canola plant establishment, target five to eight uniform plants per square foot. You wanna take care when you're seeding to maximize your emergence and uniformity. And then finally, and potentially most importantly is that you you make improvements. So after you do these first three steps, um, you should have a good picture of what uh, establishment looks like on your farm or on your client's fields. Uh, and you can help them or, or initiate your own improvements. So when it comes to targeting five to eight uniform plants per square foot, um, it's, it's kind of, uh, that that range is, is set for a reason, um, and plant density is really about risk management. So will you see a yield impact going from five plants per square foot to eight plants per square foot? Um, no you won't and, uh, and even you know in around that three four plants per square foot is where you'll see that yield uh, stability and predictability drop off but but really plant density is about risk management less less than yield um, and how comfortable you are with risk. Um, canola seed is a is a big investment um, it is a high value investment and a high value input and it's important that we remember that seed cost is not our total cost of production, although that's a big bill right at the beginning of the season. Um, we know that fewer plants are going to mean slower canopy closure and later maturity. Um, that will impact flea beetles. If you have fewer fle- fewer canola plants for them to feed on, then that damage can, can be more significant. Also, you can't afford to lose any plants to them. Um, weeds will have more space to grow in a lower uh, lower plant density and also... Um, This picture here, uh, I took in 2019, um, when we had a really early snow in my territory, but this is a a pretty common story across the prairies in in recent years, and, you know, one thing you can do to impact your maturity is choose an earlier maturing variety, but also another thing would be to bump up that plant density to that seven to eight plants per square foot range. We know that more plants equal a faster canopy closure, so more competition with weeds and uh, an earlier maturity, as I said, um, and with more plants, any plant loss is a lot less impactful. You'll also have better integrated weed management. So a few years ago when we switched to recommendation from 7 to 10 plants per square foot to 5 to 8 plants per square foot, the biggest pushback we got was from the weed scientists who were really concerned that we're already pushing to thinner plant stands and we're already having more and more people do, you know, two herbicide applications and, and we're having issues with herbicide resistant weeds. So Plant density is a lot more than seed cost and yield. It's, it's really about integrated management um, and, and risk management. So you'll want to use the canola calculator.ca to set seeding rates for each field uh, to hit that plant density. It uh, looks like a lot of you guys on the webinar are already looking at um, your thousand seed weight when you're setting seeding rates. So I think that's a really, a really good thing. And I really urge you to check out the seeding rate calculator and also the other calculators on uh, canolacalculator.ca. Um, Next would be taking care when seeding or planting. Really, the whole purpose of seeding or planting canola is to maximize emergence and uniformity. So always have that in the back of your mind uh, when you're seeding or when you're out helping your customers. Um, Wherever possible, seed into warm moist soils. so at least five degrees Celsius. I'm going to have a slide near the end talking about chasing moisture because I know that's a a big topic this year. But while seeding, um, you know, if you're if you're running the drill stop as often as you can check your seed fertilizer placement and separation. Um, Make sure you're stopping to calibrate at least once in every field and every time you stop stop to check placement go out dig some rows side by side, so you can see what your placement is um, from front to back of the drill. Um, And also remember that uh, that the only safe seed place fertilizer really is phosphorus, it's the only thing that needs to be in the seed row, you want to max that at 20 pounds, um, and you want to be really careful with that. Um, Next, you want to evaluate each field, so as these little seedlings are coming up out of the ground, this picture here is a little bit early for for a final stand count, it's about two leaves, um, so you could wait a little bit later, even after herbicide timing. Really, when you're counting plants, you want to check at least five unique spots and calculate an average for each field. Uh, volunteers like this one here between the seed rows do not count uh, in your emergence uh, calculation and your density your density counts. Um, I've got a hoop in this, this picture. I like using hoops because they bounce. Um, also, uh, in the past year, I haven't had uh, much for child care, especially last summer. So my kids would come along with me a lot and and getting your kids throwing hoops and counting is a good thing to entertain them and, and keep them from fighting too much when they're in the field with you. Um, making a plant count hoop is, is super easy. It's basic geometry, geometry, which is also, you know, if anyone's got kids home on quarantine, you can make them, uh, try and get them to make some hoops for you. Uh, I use a quarter meter squared hoop, um, which is 50 sec- 56 centimeters in diameter, 177 cir- centimeters circumference. Um, you could use an imperial hoop, so you could use a two, a two square foot hoop and then just divide by two to get your numbers per square foot. Uh, And that's 49 centimeter diameter, 153 centimeter circumference. And then finally, the last thing in establishing a a strong plant stand is making improvements. Um, So the whole point of this exercise is to understand the strengths and and challenges in in the fields. And so uh, some of the easy pickings, I guess, um, that I, I hope you already initiate this year, but you'll probably identify going forward, would be calibrating more often, checking seed and fertilizer placement and separation more. Um, This seems like a really basic thing, but it's something that uh, myself and my team get calls to every single year. Um, Actually, one of my colleagues a couple years ago got called to a field where someone had a new drill, went out and seeded um, like 2,000 acres with it or, or 2,300 acres, something like that. Um, and then when it was coming up, they noticed uh, it was the field was really stripy, and what happened was the hoses for the fertilizer and the seed were backwards, so the seed was getting put down uh, two and a half inches deep, and the fertilizer was was up in that three-quarter inch range, and so that's something that that could have been um, perhaps avoided if if placement and separation had been had been checked. Um, so so really watch out for that. Um, You can optimize residue distribution at harvest, which is something you should be thinking about now um, for this spring or this fall. Optimize soil phosphorus long term so that you have less of a need to push seed placed phosphorus rates. Um, This is a big one, uh, and and I encourage you even this spring as you're going out and seeding canola uh, to shut your foss off, you know, for 100 feet or something like that and, and mark that spot or come back to it and see if you have better emergence there because that fertilizer burn is pretty hard to diagnose. It's really just a thinner stand. And if you seed all your canola the same way, you might never notice that you're, that you're throwing away canola seeds. Um, and then improve record keeping to avoid herbicide carryover issues. Um, this one might be a big deal this year with how dry it was in a lot of, in a lot of the prairies last uh, late summer, fall, and then going into the spring.
0: I'm going to take a moment here to introduce a new project that Autumn has this year called Canola Counts. It's a crowdsourced data collection project to assess canola plant populations across the prairies, and Autumn would like you to be part of the crowd. Growers, agronomists, CCAs, farm kids, and anyone really can participate, and you can find out how at canolacounts.ca. And now, finally, Autumn will close her section by answering the question about how deep to seed in dry conditions.
4: Okay, so um, the question that I've been asked and, and heard argued about a lot this year, should I chase moisture? Um, I live in Lethbridge, uh, Alberta, which uh, is kind of our driest area in the prairies. We have had, uh, well, 2017, 18 and 19 were extremely dry years. There were parts of my territory that saw an inch of moisture all summer um, for a number of those years. Um, so. I'm a little bit well-versed in in what's happening in the dry conditions, and we argue about this, chasing moisture in my territory every spring. Um, And the big question is, how far down is it to moisture? Have you been looking at the maps and getting scared, or have you been going out to every field and digging with a Dutch auger or a hand shovel and seeing exactly how far down that moisture is? And if you don't know the answer for every field of yours or a field you're advising a client on, then I really highly recommend that you get out there and look because you might be surprised what you find. Um, Next, most importantly, would be how accurately are you going to be placing or is the the grower going to be placing every seed? So if you're you're talking about chasing moisture down to two inches, how confident are you that that seeding implement that's going to be used is going to be placing every single seed at two inches? How many of them are going to be at two and a half? How many of them are going to be at one and a half? And what's that stand going to look like? Are you comfortable with putting that little seedling through that much stress to get up out of the ground um, uh, just to chase that moisture. So uh, another question is, um, you know, and this kind of relates back to the first one, uh, how far down to moist soil, if you're planning on going two inches deep, is the seed going to be sitting in moisture? Is it going to be above it? And also, what's the soil temperature at the intended seeding depth? Because usually when we're checking soil temperature, we're looking a lot more shallow. So if you're seeding two inches deep, it's a little colder. If it's super dry, as dry as we're scared it might be in some areas, um, you know, how how cold is it and how stressed is that seed going to be? Sitting there cold, maybe not as wet as you think it would be, trying to fight its way up through dry soil. I I don't know, another another thing to consider before you pull the trigger on that, that two inch depth. Um, And also another thing that some growers in my territory have had luck with is playing with packing pressures. So in really dry conditions, um, you know, adding a little more packing packing pressure can help um, optimize that seed to soil contact and make up or get the seed to sort of take up a little bit of that moisture um, that's there. Uh, Additionally, one last thing in in my long diatribe about seeding to moisture is is the weather forecast. Um, You know, in our... You know 17 to to 2019 years it seemed like there was always rain six days five days in the forecast and every day it would just push a day later and so the reality is when we're talking about seeding canola it is april 8th so we still have a good month before we really need to be getting excited about seeding canola or at least you know three weeks so there's time for rain there's a lot of other things that you can do instead of you know panicking about dry conditions when it comes time you know to seed canola make sure you're down in every field, looking and checking for moisture. There's a great Canola Watch article uh, that just came out yesterday, talking about the things that you can do while you're you're waiting or before you you seed canola. So so there's other things you can do. And this is sort of, I guess, the the picture that hopefully you'll scare some folks a little bit. Um, This was a field in my territory in 2018. Uh, 2018, we had a lot of herbicide carryover issues in Southern Alberta. And this particular field was seeded uh, about two inches deep um, it was extremely dry conditions, there was a group two carryover issue, and uh, we ended up having quite a bit of uh, seedling disease, which turned into brown girdling root rot. So when it comes to canola establishment, one plus one can often equal three, and in this case we've got one plus one plus one plus one equaling, you know, five or six or total disaster, and this field happened to be right next to the highway, which was, you know, another another negative thing. So. Be really cautious with, with chasing moisture would be my encouragement. And make sure you're aware of where that moisture is and the capacity of the cedar uh, or planter to place the soil at depth. That is all. I'm looking forward to question period. Thanks, guys.
0: Okay, let's get moving on to Larry. Last speaker is Larry Durand. And uh, Larry operates an agronomic consulting business called Field Good Agronomics. And Larry is working at a Humboldt uh, he's actually from Manitoba, if people recognize that name. Uh, but he's been out there in Humboldt for 20 years or so. And uh, he'll talk about how he approaches flea beetle management with his farmer customers. Larry.
5: Thanks, Jay. Uh, yeah, so uh, basically uh, what I'm going to do here, I'm, I guess I've been kind of asked to be the cleanup act, but uh, the, uh, take all the wonderful information that the previous speakers have given us and kind of pull it all together and talk a little bit about how to use this information to really make some good management decisions at the farm level. So whether you're a farmer or if you're an agronomist working face to face, you know, with the farmer, uh, some of these, how do you use some of this information to to make some of these decisions? So we'll go right into it. So what I have here is what I call the flea beetle management cycle, the way I kind of view it. Um, There's uh, decisions to be made preceding, at seeding time, and also post seeding. And so I'll, I'll kind of talk about all those in, in those fashions. But overall, uh, when we're thinking about flea beetles, uh, the objective is that uh, we can avoid having to make a foliar insecticide application. So let's talk about pre-seeding. So at this time of year, and I'll even suggest that uh, months ago, we should have been thinking about uh, some of these, some of these items. But uh, the first thing to do is a risk assessment. So uh, what are important uh, things to think about when you're assessing your risk for flea beetles? Uh, and it should be not just on a farm basis, but on a field by field basis. So we gotta think about things like crop rotation, past flea beetle issues. I think everybody's had flea beetle issues in the past. So I, I don't know that that's a big, big issue, but, uh, but also consider what flea beetle species Uh, that you've had problems with, and uh, what weather conditions have been or what you think they might be like and how that might impact. And of these risk components, I would suggest that probably your crop rotation and the species of flea beetles uh, you've been experiencing are probably the two most important factors. So you need to buy that seed variety slash treatment combination To match the risk you have on some of these fields. And uh, it's important to note that all not all seed treatments are available on all varieties. And and it's important to understand the differences between the different seed treatments, which ones do what? Keith went uh, through this, uh, presented this information quite well. I'm going to present it a little bit differently. All of these products are are really good on the crucifer flea needles. Um, here in Humboldt, we've got just about all striped flea beetles. Um, in fact, I think if I'd ever find a crucifer flea beetle, I would capture it and donate it to the museum. That's how rare they are here now, like it's, it's getting. So, um, for me, I really want to establish how well these are going to perform against the striped flea beetles. And I've rated these poor, I'm, I'm probably being a little bit harsh. They do have activity on striped flea beetles. If you're looking to get striped flea beetle activity, that's where you get your Fortenza advanced. Uh, Again, it's the same as Fortenza, but they've added the sulfoxiflor, which is, uh, for those of you who are familiar with Vesivio, instead of Vesivio now, I don't think you can get it by itself. It's it's, that component has now been added with the the Fortenza. So now you have a product here that you can get activity on both your cutworms and your striped flea beetles. And of course, as, Keith had mentioned new product by Bayer called Buteo Start, and uh, it's uh, purported to have very good activity on both the crucifer and striped flea beetle activity. I haven't seen this in the field yet, but I look forward to seeing it. So basically what you want to do, you want to think back to those fields that you've assigned as being a high-risk field, maybe where you're going to purchase this, these extra treatments, maybe put those on those fields that are going to have higher risk. Seeding management, you know, Autumn just did a great job of uh, of talking about this, but from a flea beetle standpoint, basically what we're talking about here is cultural control strategies. And it's all about getting that crop up and growing quickly. Uh, seeding date, of course, the earlier you seed, the slower it's gonna take to come out of the ground. And John mentioned, you know, you got that three or four weeks of effectiveness of these seed treatments. So if you can't get to that three to four leaves in, in those first three or four weeks, you're, you're gonna come and in, run into trouble. Seeding depth, seeding rate, you know, Autumn did a great job to talk about that. On this note, I put a little note here, pre-seed. If you think you're gonna be in a high risk and so you think you wanna increase your seeding rate by half a pound or a pound per acre, You need to make that decision before you're in the field seeding because you need to have that extra seed. So if you've got a half section of canola that you decide you wanna increase your seeding rate, you need to have purchased that an extra 160 to 320 pounds of seed to to accommodate for that decision. And then again, any practices that are conducive to quick crop emergence. So again, good phosphorus fertility management, uh, good seed bed preparation, good seed to soil contact, uh, those are all really important to help manage that uh, flea beetle. And then once uh, again, we're, we're moving now into post seeding, scout, scout, scout. This is a picture of my work boots. I don't know what you're thinking with, when you're looking at this, you're probably thinking one of two things is that while wow, Larry scouts a lot of fields, or you're thinking that, wow, Larry's really cheap and uh, too cheap to buy himself some new work boots. Um, Truth is, it's probably a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. But uh, it's important uh, once your crop is, is emerging and coming up, you got to be out there lots to uh, to scout. And It's important to note with flea beetles, it's not usually going to be uniform across the field, as we've already heard, it's usually patchy. Sometimes uh, and oftentimes it's worse on the field margins. So don't just pull up onto the, uh, the approach Walk in about as far as you can spit and make a make an assessment there. That's not adequate. You might have uh, it. It might look a lot worse there, and then as you walk in, it might not be bad. And then all you need to do is control your field margins, or maybe your margins will be fine, and you'll have some other areas in the field that are bad. And, and uh, so you really got to uh, got to check everywhere, and also you got to monitor over time. So uh, you know when you start seeing issues, and Keith had mentioned this. You know, it might not look that bad today, but in a few days it might be worse So, you know, drop a pin on your phone or or put flags if that's works better for you. But to monitor those patches, go back every couple of days to to check that. So your scouting should be, you know, spatial scouting and temporal scouting, and both of those two are, are very important to to keep on top of those flea beetle issues. And. Uh, Yeah, follow those established economic thresholds. Keith said this really well. You know, we know what, you know, that 25% defoliation. uh, But also, it's not just about the percent defoliation, the amount of damage. Consider what's your canola doing? Is your canola growing really well, really aggressively? Is it getting close to that three or four leaf stage that it might outgrow it? And so give it a chance uh, or on the flip side, you know, did you have are you having some issues with emergence for whatever reason? Maybe you've you've come across some frost, maybe that, that made you lose plants and slowed down the progress. And, and so then sometimes just based on how your canola is doing, you might want to massage that economic threshold a little bit. And that comes with uh, with uh, with some experience and a lot of scouting and going out regularly to, to monitor how things are progressing. And uh, again, I if you can avoid spraying, there's a lot, we have a lot of friends out there. Uh, I'll encourage you to go to the Field Heroes website, think beneficials before you spray. Lots of really good resources there about beneficial insects, whether they're pollinators or or just insects that, uh, that are predators of, of insect pests. Um, and, you know, if you do have to spray, I know that Manufacturers of the seed treatments will provide free product. Often it's 50% of your insecticide, your foliar insecticide, if you need to spray. I have known farmers and even agronomists who have taken that to mean that, oh well, then I could justify spraying at less than 25% defoliation because my chemical is cheaper. And do not look at it that way. We want to save our friends in the field, or our field heroes. Um, so make sure you're still following those thresholds. Finally, uh, last resort, if you do have to do a foliar, uh, spray, um, spot spray, if it's feasible, if it is just field margins or or areas that are easy to to delineate, do that. Uh, water is your friend. Uh, you want to get coverage. So use at least 10 gallons of water, avoid the heat of the day. Um, and, uh, if you're going to have to go out to spray, check if there's any other insects out there as well. If, uh, you know, cutworms were mentioned earlier. If you also have a cutworm problem and you don't realize it today when you go spray for flea beetles and you use a product like a, a desis or matador, for example, you're not going to get the cutworm activity. And then you go back in a week and realize you've got cutworms and now you got to go spray something else. Now you're hitting two foliar fungicides and that just makes it doubly bad. So... Um, yeah, make sure you're covering everything with one application if, if it comes to that. So uh, that's all I have. So, uh, yeah, if, uh, I guess we'll give it back to you, Jay, and uh, I think we're ready to start the questions.
0: Yep. Thanks, Larry. The Q&A digs into a few more details on a couple of the topics already discussed on this podcast. If you don't want to stick around for the i a i'll just remind you that the flea beetles chapter in the insects section at canolaencyclopedia.ca has more on the life cycle and management tips including a new graphic showing leaf area defoliation here's the q a questions came from participants in the webinar and i relayed them on to our guests john uh, if you feel numbers are high in the fall is it worth spraying and this is so numbers are high in the fall. Now it's spring. If you spray, your neighbors don't just do all of the flea beetles move in from your neighbor's field, given that they've seemed to move around fairly quickly.
1: Yeah, uh, as I mentioned, the the correlation between the fall numbers and the spring, people have tried to measure that to do studies on it a couple times. And data is real messy. It's not a great correlation. Uh, You can use that as a Somewhat of a guide, but uh, again, the correlation is not great. Now, regarding if you spray, you cleaned up your field, your neighbors aren't, flea beetles are very mobile. So uh, there is certainly that possibility that they could be moving in from your neighbors' fields. Now, whether they do, mo- their, their movement is something that needs a lot more work as well. Alejandro is doing a bit of work on that. Um, but there's certain things that will um, dictate where they move to um, they're probably going to go to the closest good source of food to where they've overwintered and what often draws them in is once you do get a little bit of feeding there's a chemical given off by the plant called glucosinolates that will draw them in Uh, the flea beetles themselves produce something called an aggregation pheromone so that means they smell the chemical released by their uh their peers, their siblings, and they uh, uh, they get drawn to that. So um, short answer is do, if you do do a foliar spray, you're still in the vulnerable stages, still keep an eye on it. We have seen people have to do two and even three or more sprays uh, when flea beetles were very thick and they are very active. So, yeah, keep an eye on it.
0: This, John, this alludes to something you mentioned, but I'm going to let Ale answer this one. So uh, 15 degree Celsius soil temperatures, uh, that's when the crucifers really get going, um, uh, emerge. Uh, what about stripes? Do we have some details on when striped start to emerge?
2: Yeah, um, we didn't study directly temperature and emergence of levitus. We observed that stripe tends to be earlier than crucifer. Um, so um, so that's all we, we know so far, but we don't have a detailed model of immersions based on temperature. Um, what I can say is we have tried in the lab feeding at lower temperatures than 18, and it's very, very little. Um, now we use constant temperature in the field. Temperature is not constant. Uh, you know, when the sun hits, it's probably higher than the air temperature that we measure so there's some microclimatic issues there uh, so they could potentially be doing uh feeding at, at lower real temperatures uh, than what we have measured but um
0: but speaking but yeah, of model yeah. just to follow up on that ali uh jason also asked about growing degree days and and modeling do we have any any number of growing degree days where we can start to predict when the flea beetles come out john you can jump in here too if you want
1: uh, as far as I know, there there's no growing degree day models that we can use. Uh, the, the work just hasn't been done, really, for that.
0: Ale, anything to add there?
2: No, I agree. Oh, we don't have a okay. model, and it's very hard to, to predict where they're moving. Uh, just for the previous question, we don't know how far they move, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, the studies we are doing um, uh, give us... Probably the only way we have, which is indirect, to assess that. So if we found that they are responding to things that are within two kilometers, that's what we normally use for for these and other insects to gauge how far they move, right? For things that affect them within a, a smaller scale, that indicates they are really moving within that scale. So as far as we know, uh, now you know they they could move up, you know, respond to things that are within two kilometer distance. So um, yeah, so that, that's all I think I, I can say about movement at this point.
0: Anyway, uh, I'm, I'm, let's move on to a couple of weather-related um, flea beetle management questions. I don't know who wants to take this one, but uh, Curtis asks, uh, when damage reaches 25% in the morning, how fast can it blow up to by the end of the day? Could you get to 50 by the end of the day? Alejandro, you're nodding. Why don't you take this one?
2: I shouldn't have not. uh <laughs> <laughs> i <laughs> uh, i i we, we don't know uh, but uh all, all I can say is we try to to do our experiments uh sampling three times a week, and it sometimes it's not enough, but I don't have real data on that, um, but you know we will go on Monday and it might be ten percent, we will go on on Wednesday and maybe fifty percent, so I don't know how fast it happened, but within the two days uh it can happen very quickly.
0: John, before we go to you, let's see if uh, Keith, Autumn or, or Larry have a, have a comment.
3: In as little as a day, I've heard from a number of people. Um, I can't say I've ever seen that happen myself on small plots where there's not a lot of canola around. Yes, I think I'd give you that, but in as little as a day. Where I see um, that change happening that quickly is often if you haven't done a really good job of scouting, uh, and if you don't mark, Larry mentioned putting flags in the field, and that's actually pretty important, because if you go to a different spot in the field, even if it's 25, 30 feet away, and if you haven't actually got a good feel for the entire field, you could easily get the impression that your feeding damage has gone up 25%. So it's, it's the amount of scouting that you're doing and, and uh, the frequency of scouting, the the more, uh, the more you're scared, the more often you should be in there. And, and if you're in the unfortunate situation where a foliar insecticide is, Going to be required. You'll probably have the feeling like, why? Why didn't I just pull the trigger and make that decision earlier? But it's it's a it's a drawn out procedure to to make that decision and decide if it's needed. So uh, it's uh, there's no right answer. I'll pass it off. Well,
0: well. and I guess the, the key there is that uh, if you're at twenty five percent in the morning and it seems like a, a good day for feeding, uh, you might as well. I mean, that's the action threshold, right? So if we're if we're working towards any number uh 35 45 50 or more uh that's that sounds like a time to spray john
1: yeah i was just gonna uh, mention there, there's really three environmental factors that will determine uh how quickly that feeding progresses so it's going to depend on the day and what it's like humidity is one of them we know that they feed um more on drier days than on more humid days Wind speed, they don't like it too windy. So if it's calm and dry, uh, they will do more feeding. And also temperature, Alejandro alluded to that, hot, dry, calm, that's when you're gonna get your maximum feeding on a hot, dry, calm day. In late May, early June, you can easily go from 25 to 50 or more in a day. If it's damp or uh, windy, cool, less likely. So those hot, dry, calm days, really scout your fields carefully especially if it's been that three weeks and uh, uh just anecdotally um when I was doing flea beetle um variety work in Alberta uh we were trying to entice flea beetles to feed on our plants to get damaged and we noticed that when the humidity was too high they just weren't feeding as much uh, so that can be quite noticeable and, and obviously a temperature thing Alejandro alluded to that
0: so uh, Jason actually had a follow up to that, John. Uh, well, it, he asked it a long time ago, but it fits in with what you were just saying um, on on wind speed. So with with higher winds, will the flea beetles go down and and feed on the stem, or does their activity just drop off?
1: I think Alejandro is actually studying that, um, so he, he's probably a better one to answer. We don't know, but we were we're. Um, what we suspect that's probably what happens is that on a windier day they're staying in the cracks in the soil or they're staying lower on the plant and doing more feeding no one's really i don't think confirmed it but i think alejandro might have been doing some work on that is that correct
2: alejandro we're trying <laughs> it's a lot more difficult than we thought to to manipulate the wind in a in a good way um, you know, but we are, that, that's part of what Shayla is trying to do in the lab is uh, we start with temperature because uh, essentially we couldn't do the wind part yet. But uh, yeah, we're trying to test whether cold and windy conditions cause more stem damage. So we're developing also a way to efficiently measure stem damage, which is uh, a big uh, hindrance in this kind of research. So we're close to to get that and see if we can get more data on that.
0: We shift gears here with the Q&A, moving to a question about how deep to seed canola in dry soils.
4: You have to you have to know what's in your field. So, so should you plan to seed everything at a half inch uh, when it's dry powder? Um, probably not. If rain is, you know, 90% chance coming tonight, then you could to take advantage of it. Um, the deepest that I would feel comfortable making a recommendation to seed would probably be an inch and a quarter, inch and a half. And that just, it scares me because I know that Placing seed that deep does not mean every seed is going that deep. Um, and so if you've got an operator and a piece of equipment that you are confident is going to be laser precise, placing every single seed at that depth, uh, really it's a matter of, you know, how much risk the grower is able to tolerate. But I just get, I get a little nervous when everybody jumps to that two inches. Um, and I and I think it, the important part is going out and checking your um going out and checking what's there. Because if you're going two inches down and you're not going to be in soil moisture at two inches down, um, I don't know. I'd, I'd argue that's just adding unnecessary stress. But I'm, I'm interested in Larry's experience on this.
5: Uh, the experience I've had actually is it's uh, is, is been a bit mixed. I have had customers that uh, we, we went through like 10 years of really wet weather. And so just encouraging guys to see shallow enough uh, was, was often a challenge. And now we've turned back into dry. And some guys have, have got into that habit of seeding that you know, half inch, even you know, when you do that, you're at that quarter inch. And what I've noticed is that some guys wanna seed just to the moisture, just on top of the moisture. And what's sometimes happens is that if you do that and then you go through a dry spell, so you're just on the moisture. So you have enough moisture for that seed to imbibe the moisture and get going. And if you don't get any rain, that seedling just withers and dies. Whereas if you seed it into the dust, then it's just going to sit there. And then once you get a rain, uh, a a good rain, it'll, then, then it'll, it'll imbibe, it'll start growing and and it'll survive. So uh, you want to seed, if you, if you've got some moisture at about an inch and I wouldn't, like uh, Autumn says, I wouldn't want to go much more than an inch and a quarter or an inch and a half. But if you're going to go that deep, make sure there's good moisture there because if you're, going that deep just on top of the moisture and there's no rain in the forecast, you can end up with a world of hurt.
0: That's the end of the Q&A. Here's Keith Colbert with a wrap-up.
3: Well, if I had to summarize it, I would probably go back to seeding is the one chance that you're going to have to set your crop up for success. So do a good job of it. Uh, the best investment you can put in your field is a scouting shadow and checking your depth in one spot on one row is really not Uh, not enough and it might be funny that I'm talking about seeding when the whole webinar has been been about uh, flea beetles but my experience with flea beetles is it's kind of like baseball you're not out on one strike if you do a poor job of seeding and then it gets hot and dry and then you realize that you have high populations flea beetles will take over and, and damage your crops so so get out there do a good job set yourself up for success and continue scouting throughout the whole season Jay.
0: That's a wrap on this podcast. Thanks to Karina Lepp and Leanne Campbell with Manitoba Canola Growers for organizing the webinar, and of course to John, Ale, Larry, Autumn, and Keith for their detailed management tips. For more on flea beetles, including a new graphic showing 25% and 50% leaf area loss, please check out the flea beetles chapter in the insects section at canolaencyclopedia.ca. Thanks for listening. I'm Jay Wedder. Canola Watch is a research-based agronomy service from the Canola Council of Canada in cooperation with the Provincial Canola Grower Associations, Saskanola, Alberta Canola, and Manitoba Canola Growers. Sign up at canolawatch.org.